Hope you all doing well. Everyone else, why don't you uh, grab your Bibles or whatever you're going to be reading God's Word with and make your way to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. We're going to be beginning in verse 1 here in a moment and work our way through verse 13 this morning. Today's focus is on priorities, as we're going to see Jesus is again challenged by the Pharisees, as he already has been in this gospel. Um, this particular time, it deals with an issue of hand-washing. Um, we all have priorities. I believe we all understand priorities. For many of us, uh, one of the first things we do in the morning is, you know, you find that cup of coffee. That's a priority for many people uh, to begin working or waking up. And as a husband, I have a priority to my wife. As a father and, and her a mother, we have priorities to our children. And priorities are those things that we have a deep sense that they have to be done. Uh, they're important. And sometimes we can get our priorities out of whack, which can cause consequences and things we don't want to happen. Our passage this morning deals with a challenge which appears to be addressed concerning Jesus' disciples, but it's actually addressed about Jesus' training and his leading of these men that are following him under his teaching. It's based on a misplaced priority of tradition, as we'll see here in a moment. And so let's read through it, and we'll discover four priorities that Jesus brings out that we all need to have in our life. And the word of the Lord says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples are, I'm sorry, some of his disciples ate with hands that are defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from their marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribe, scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did, well, did Isaiah Prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And you leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you, have, you would have gained for me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit them to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you right now as your children, as your bride, as your church, to so open up the scriptures that we may hear from you. That it would be your voice speaking to our hearts, that you would transform us, Lord, that you would awaken us, that you would draw us close into your presence, Father, that we may know you because we're known by you. Father, I pray for everyone in this room, for those who are already your children, for those who may be here who need to begin that relationship with you found in Jesus Christ. And I pray your spirit would give them the wisdom and the understanding on what they need to do in order for that to begin. Father, we pray that you alone be glorified in this place, that your will and kingdom would come in each and every life, that we would be a church that lifts you up and praises you and puts you before everything else. 
Lord, let me just be an instrument of your righteousness in this moment. We pray for forgiveness where we have failed you. We pray for your leadership as our shepherd as we walk through your word. Father, we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who sits on the throne. Amen. So the scenario here sets up that the Pharisees seem to have summoned some scribes from Jerusalem, and they come to Jesus questioning Jesus about the washing of hands. It's actually referred to as a ceremonial cleansing. And this isn't the first time that the Pharisees or scribes or religious leaders have come to challenge Jesus in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. They challenged him concerning fasting, wondering oh, why his disciples didn't fast. They challenged him when the disciples picked grain, but it was on the Sabbath, and they considered that work. The point is they're challenging Jesus, and it's going to begin to amp up. Is At this point in time in the gospel, we're about one to two years before Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem for the final time. So what we have here in verse 1 is a religious interrogation posse. What is ironic is this group is antagonistic toward Jesus, yet for some reason they're constantly drawn to him. They constantly want to ask him questions. They constantly want to challenge him. They want to put him to the test. And upon arrival, Jesus' disciples were eating without washed hands. Now, we've all experienced the wonderful years of COVID, right? And so we can relate to this situation pretty easily. I always found it ironic when COVID started going around. What they told us on the news in order to protect ourselves was that after you go to the restroom, wash your hands with soap and water. I thought that was just automatic. I, I didn't think that was something newsworthy or something. But then the joke became, if you got COVID, you know who didn't wash their hands, right? And do you remember when they told us with COVID that when, after we get back from the grocery store, we're to get wipes and we're to wipe down all the containers, the cans and the boxes and then wipe down the counter that they were on just to make sure nothing was spreading. Even though we weren't planning on eating the can, we weren't planning on eating the box that had the food in it, but it was something that they kept telling us to do in order for cleanliness. This is what the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are bringing forward towards Jesus. And we can better understand it because of what we went through with COVID. And they're challenging Jesus about cleanliness. The Gospel of Mark is written by an individual named John Mark. It's widely believed that it was dictated to Mark by Peter. Um, some believe Peter may have been illiterate and therefore he could not have written it himself. And the reason I bring that up, because Mark is writing to a group of Gentile believers. And we can understand that because in verse 3 and 4, Mark is giving us a little background information concerning this washing of hands and this cleansing, so his Gentile audience would be able to understand the Jewish traditions and the Jewish customs. Now, the point of the attack towards Jesus has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with believing him or trusting him. It's all about keeping the traditions that were passed down from the Jewish elders. The religious leaders' accusation towards Jesus was based on a conviction they had is that this is not the way we do things around here. Now, if you've ever been in a church that has had that mentality, that is a very dangerous, negative, and hostile mentality. We don't do that around here. If it's biblical, we do it, period. Well, these guys are bringing an accusation to Jesus that wasn't based upon Scripture at all. The Bible points out in the Old Testament that there was a calling to wash hands, but it was given to the priest before they would offer up a sacrifice. 
Now, obviously, we wouldn't disagree that washing of hands before you eat and washing of containers that are going to hold food before you eat out of them is a good thing, but that's not the point of the challenge. The scribes and Pharisees are upset because they're not, Jesus is not holding to their tradition. Instead, he's living out the word of God. It's based upon an addition that the Pharisees and scribes and the religious leaders actually attach to the law of God. Their belief was that the way Jesus or the Jews were to handle situations, handle hands in containers, their belief is the way they did that and the way they cleansed those things, that is what separated them as a Jewish people or the people who are under the covenant of God. That's what made them different from any sort of Gentile or Samaritan. They believed that if something was unclean, be it hands or vessels, and an individual used those vessels or used those hands, that would make them unclean. Jesus is going to deal with that issue later in verses 14 through 23. We'll look at that next week. What the tradition said was, for one should eat, they should wash their hands vigorously. The phrase there in verse 3, that about washing their hands properly, is a strange translation of what it actually means. It actually means to wash your hands with a fist. The image is washing and driving your fist and your hand to get all of the dirt off, and then you would do it the other way. And that way you'd be clean. Some even interpret that maybe it implies washing all the way up to your elbow like a doctor would before they would go into surgery. But again, the point of the attack is not about faith. It's about what the religious leaders wanted. The second part about the washing, about when they go to the marketplace there in verse 4. It's a strange word for wash there in verse 4 because that word actually means baptize. It'd be like taking a bath implying that you were to cleanse yourself before you would take, partake of the food that you bought of the marketplace. And the reason the Pharisees and the scribes and religious leaders had this tradition is because the understanding was you don't know who you're going to run into at the marketplace. You may cross paths with a Gentile. You may cross paths with a Samaritan. You may have come into contact with someone who was sick. And then Mark lays out other traditions that they had with washing, washing dishes before you use them, washing the dining cushions before you place them on the table. And those dining cushions would be like cushions we have on a couch. It's that they'd be put on the floor because tables were lowered to the ground at this time. And again, the belief was that if you sat on a dirty cushion, then you would become unclean. And you were going to be putting things into your body that would be unclean. Obviously, the tradition was flawed because it wasn't a clean dining room or a clean person or a clean hand which set the Jews apart. What set the Jews apart is that God made a covenant with Abraham and he fulfilled that covenant or that promise. Now, if you read in the Old Testament, I know many people are reading through the Bible this year and you're probably getting into the wonderful parts of Numbers and Latter Exodus and Leviticus. You will find that the Jews did, in fact, have dietary restrictions, but it was never applied to this sort of washing that the religious leaders are bringing up. Because of the question posed there in verse 5, it implies the tradition was followed in a wide circle of Jewish people. Though the question seems to be aimed at the disciples, it's really aimed at Jesus because they're recognizing him as their leader. They're recognizing that the disciples belong to him. And so the accusation is actually towards Jesus. What are you teaching these people? How in the world are you leading these people out of our traditions and out of our customs and our rituals? They felt that their tradition was of great importance. 
And Jesus even brings out how important they thought it was. It's then Jesus responds in verse 6 and 7, where he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. It's taken from Isaiah 29, 13. In Isaiah 29, the context of the thing is God's pronouncement of judgment upon Jerusalem because his people were doing all the things that they thought they should do, but they were doing it with no love towards God. They were not doing it in worship. They were just going through the motions. They weren't actually being obedient to God. They weren't actually worshiping him. And Jesus brings this passage up because this is the accusation Jesus now turns onto these religious leaders in verse 8. The meaning is is that they have amplified their traditions over the word and the commands of God. They have deemed that their rules, their rituals, their traditions are actually more sacred than what God has spoken. Drive home the point, Jesus brings up the issue of Corban. He starts by quoting another passage that comes from the book of Exodus, it's chapter 20. It deals with the Ten Commandments about honoring one's parents. Matter of fact, Paul would bring this passage up in one of his letters when he wrote to the believers in Ephesus, letting us know that even though Jesus fulfilled the law, that this command is still valid, that children are to honor their parents. Paul even points out in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, that this is the first commandment with a promise, and that when children honor their parents, the promises, it will, may go well with you, and then you may live long in the land." The second part, Jesus adds for emphasis, that if one fails to honor their father or their mother, then they must surely die. It's also taken from the law. It's found in Exodus chapter 21, verse 17. The point of these two commands that Jesus brings up was God was revealing to his people in Exodus and throughout Scripture the high value that he places on the family unit. And this is one of our first priorities we're going to look at, though it's obviously not the overarching one but the priority of family. If you're reading through the Bible, you're going to find from the very beginning that God has placed a high priority on the family unit. And he has defined what actually makes up a family. That a family is made up of a marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. There is no other family unit, structure, in marriage, defined and deemed by God. Only one man and one woman. He defined this marriage unit as more important than it, the biological family that people would come from. He says that the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then it is through marriage of a husband and wife to which children come, and a family begins, and they begin a family of their own, and so they leave their father and their mother to go train up their children in the ways of the Lord. God continues to reveal his priority of family and his value of family when he saved Noah, and guess what? His entire family from the flood. He called Abraham and Sarah and established the covenant through Abraham, which would flow through Abraham's family and his ancestors. He revealed the importance of his covenant with the family of Abraham when he kept Joseph safe in Egypt and how he redeemed the Israelites, the family of God, from the bondage of Egypt. This is when God delivered his law concerning family in Exodus, which Jesus brings out here. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul also deals with the family unit. He shows the priority of it and how it should function. First, dealing with a husband and wife's role to one another, and then in chapter 6, dealing how a father should raise and love their children. Paul was led by the Spirit to write that, "'Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger.'" 
but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We might think, well, why is it only mentioned fathers here? Well, in Paul's day, for context, fathers were called to be the spiritual leader of the family, which they still are today. Now, we know that it wasn't always the case throughout Scripture. Timothy, who was a disciple of Paul's, his spiritual leaders was his mother and his grandmother. But the word provoke there from Ephesians chapter 6 means to make one angry. It carries the image of poking them with a stick to aggravate them. In other words, it's calling the parental figures to not be domineering, to not be thoughtless when raising their children, which would cause the children to become discouraged. Instead, we are to disciple them. We are to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. The priority we are to have in our families, we are to center our family around the Word of God. So when our children have a question pertaining to life, we take them to the Word of God and we show them the truth. When they learn a lesson at school that does not go along with the Word of God, we take them to the Word of God so they can see the truth. When our children wonder why homosexuality and abortion is not something we believe in as God's people, we take them to the Word of God and we show them what God has already said. The priority of family is to be focused on God. What Jesus points out in our passage is this tradition that was passed down by the religious leaders, which actually opposed what God had already spoken, what he had ordained throughout eternity. This is what verses 11 through 13 is pointing to. The word Corbin is associated with an offering. You can find that word actually in the Old Testament. It was an offering that was dedicated to God and to him alone. On the understanding of honoring your father and mother, it went into when they got older. And when they couldn't take care of each other, then you would honor them by taking care of them with the resources that you had. And so a child would use their resources, their wealth, their job, their, their things around them in order to help their parents in an elderly state so they could continue to enjoy life. He would provide their needs. But what this religious tradition permitted is the child could announce that their resources are Corbin. And therefore, everything that they have is dedicated only to God And so they don't have to honor their father and mother anymore. They don't have to honor their parents. At the same time, even though they announced something as Corbin, the child would still get to enjoy the resources while they lived. Matter of fact, the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, religious leaders, when a child would announce the resources as Corbin, they would hold that to a vow and that child could never break it. No matter how bad their parents got, even if it was a life and death situation, they could never use any resources of theirs for the parents. It was completely dedicated to the priests and to the temple. So obviously this permission and this tradition benefited the Pharisees. It benefited the priests and the scribes, hence revealing the true, true intent of the tradition. It wasn't so much a benefit for the child as it was for the religious leaders. And this is what Jesus is bringing out. And so what Jesus points out through Isaiah and the Exodus passages is another priority we have to have in our life, and we've touched on a little, and that is the priority of God's Word. As God's people, we must have a priority of God's Word in our life. We can see this priority throughout the Psalms. If you were to read through the Psalms, you go to Psalm chapter 119. It's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's the longest psalm in the entire book of Psalms. And its whole view is the priority of God's word and the sacredness of God's word. Now, why would God put such a long chapter just focusing on his word and his commands? 
because it's meant to be important to God's people. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What the psalmist is being led to write and tell us is God's word is to be that thing which guides us and which directs us. It is through God's word to which we as God's people can understand God's world. We understand what, it is, what is of God. And we can look at the world through God's word and we can understand what is not of God. I mentioned this last week in our Wednesday night study of Revelation. Revelation is a a prophetic book about the end times. And sometimes we have to end on some sort of happy note because it just looks so horrible. But if you read through Revelation, what you also see is that Revelation is a book of preparation. Revelation is given to us, is given to John who wrote it and now we have it, to prepare us for the end times. It is to prepare God's people to know what is going to happen so that we don't fall into the trappings of Satan who pretends to rule. The issue here in our passage back in Mark is that the religious leaders were priding their traditions over the word of God. They actually believed that the traditions they held and the traditions they taught held more weight than what God said and commanded through his word. I think it's a great lesson for us individually and as a church. It doesn't matter if it's the cool thing to do out there. It doesn't matter if other churches are doing something and it's attracting people. Here it is. If it's not from the Word of God, we're not going to do it. It doesn't matter if it's a cool song. It doesn't matter if it becomes socially acceptable. Everyone else is doing it. If it's not from the Word of God, we're not doing it. We are to allow the Word of God to govern our actions and nothing else. Another priority that Jesus points out comes from the revealing of the hearts of the religious leaders. The quotation from Isaiah is the priority of the heart within an individual. The Pharisees, even though they come across as the enemy in the Gospels, they're actually set in place for a positive reason. The Pharisees were originally set in place and given their positions because they were to define the commands of God and the word of God to the people of God so that the people would know how they could live a life that would honor God in times when they were under a society which kept them in captivity or under a foreign nation. The problem, though, is that over time, the Pharisees started developing their traditions and their own laws. This has already been brought up two other times in Jesus' ministry concerning fasting and the Sabbath. Here it's brought up concerning washing and being ceremonially clean. And all the Pharisees and religious leaders had 613 laws on top of God's 10. And then out of those 613, they developed their own traditions, which they viewed as law, and they preached to the people to maintain them. So what Jesus is pointing out here in the Gospel of Mark is that all their traditions and all of their laws put them in the same place as the Jews in Isaiah's day. That's why he quotes that particular passage of Scripture. Because the Jews in Isaiah's day were just like the religious leaders in Jesus' day in that they were hypocrites. That word hypocrite from the Greek means an actor. He's telling these religious leaders, look, you're just playing a part. You're dressing for a role. And they would come and they would deliver their lines. They made sure they were on their mark and where they were supposed to be and what they were supposed to be doing. But they only delivered lip service because Jesus points out that their heart wasn't invested what they claimed to be doing for God. 
The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now the word keep and the word vigilance in the, in the Hebrew, they're two different words, but they're synonymous. The word keep means to guard, to watch over, to protect. So keep your heart, guard your heart, watch over your heart, protect your heart. The word vigilance also means to guard and watch, but it carries a deeper meaning of confining and imprisoning the heart. It doesn't say that we are to become hard-hearted. You can read throughout Scripture and see when people become hard-hearted, that is not a positive spiritual place to be. What God is telling us from Proverbs 4.23 is guard your heart by imprisoning your heart to the Word of God. Capture it through the Word of God. And the reason this is is because the heart is what defined a person. That's why from the heart flow springs of life. Now the heart in Scripture, when it speaks of a heart of an individual in Scripture, it refers to our thoughts. It refers to our actions the purpose and the reason we do things. And Jesus is going to point out in the passage that we'll look at next week concerning the heart. Jesus taught in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the heart, when you read that in Scripture, isn't talking about that thing inside of us that's pumping blood through our body, but it's talking about our spiritual heart and the driving force for all that we do or all that we don't do. It is the spiritual heart which gives us the desire to pursue after things. This is why God says we have to make our heart a priority in guarding it. And we're told in the book of Galatians or Ephesians that we are to guard our heart and our life with the full armor of God. The final priority that we see is the main issue that Jesus is having with these religious leaders. That's the priority of God. The Pharisees and the scribes all had this title, which was supposed to mean that they knew God. It was supposed to mean that they knew God's ways. They were the ones who would read the scripture in the temple and the synagogues, and they would teach on the scriptures to the people. They were the ones who were allowed closest into the, inside the temple. And the Pharisees are ones to be drawn by lot to be able to go into the Holy of Holies where it was believed the presence of God would dwell. The problem was that their titles meant nothing because they were only playing a part. They were only going through the motions. Their misinterpretation of Scripture and then their reinterpretation of Scripture fit the desires that they had, which revealed their heart and revealed that God wasn't really a priority for them. Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders, their priority was their agenda and what they wanted. They wanted the people to look at them in awe. Oh, look how holy they are. Look how much they know about God and his word. They wanted people to put them up on a platform and almost worship them, which is part of the reason they had a problem with Jesus, because people were going to him. And they wanted the applause. They wanted the attention. And so what they would do is they built these traditions and these laws on top of God's law so they could keep people in their place because God wasn't in their priority. The truth historically in Jesus' day about the Pharisees is they were less priestly and more political. They lobbied for their causes. 
They benefited financially off of the people. They practiced nepotism. They would put sons, sons-in-laws and the positions they had, and then they would swap back and forth so they would never lose their power. They looked down on the people who they were supposed to be living, leading and felt they were incompetent. People surely couldn't understand the things of God the way they could, the way they had been trained and taught. And so what Jesus is bringing out is that their priority was not about God. It was about their agenda. And when we make a priority about our agenda instead of God's agenda, we're going to find ourselves in a big mess. In our family, in our marriages, in our marriage, not marriages, <laughs> marriage, our relationships within the church, when we get into God's Word and we're protecting our heart through the Word of God, God always has to be the priority. He has to be the utmost pursuit. He has to be the reason for everything we do. So we don't get in the Bible study or small group or come to church so we can get more head knowledge about the Bible. We do this and we worship him so we can draw into his presence and fall deeper in love with him, to know him more. Galatians reveals that since we are God's children and God's spirit now dwells inside of us, we can not only know God more, but we can know him through his promises because we are known by God. It's part of my life, when I make things more important than God in my relationship with him, I tend to get into a mess. And it doesn't just impact me. That's, this is the thing. It impacts my marriage. It impacts how I lead my children and speak to them and treat them. It impacts how I do ministry. It impacts the thoughts I have in my head and the reactions I have to certain people. When God isn't a priority, it impacts everything. It impacts how I handle money. And I found when God isn't a priority in my life, my worries amplify. And I become focused on that instead of him. That's why we're told the greatest commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. What that verse is implying is we are to love God with every ounce of our being. Every resource we have, every thought we have, every word we have. It gives the image of oomph, lifting something heavy. That's how we're being commanded to love God. And you can't love God that way if he's not a priority in our life. If God isn't a priority in our marriage, then we'll never love our spouse the way we could. If God isn't a priority in our parenting, We'll never parent our kids the way we could. And here's the thing, parents. If our kids see us putting a priority on something other than God, that's the lesson we teach them. God is important, but not as important as whatever that is. If God isn't a priority in our church, we'll never be the church that God wants us to be. Let me speak to our students College, high school, middle school. Students, if God isn't a priority in your school, 
he's not a priority in your extracurricular activities, you'll never fully accomplish why God puts you in that class, puts you in that activity, or puts you on that team. You may do some great things, you may get some great accolades, but you'll never fully reach the potential why God put you there. If you pursue after a sport, an activity, a relationship, a grade, a scholarship, more than you pursue after God, you're going to be disappointed because they can never love you back. We're here at Harvest Hill to worship Him, to lift Him up alone. I don't preach because, well, it's that time for the preacher to preach. I preach so we can all be in His presence and hear His voice. I preach so we can understand his word and what he's trying to warn us about. Preach so that it would be his kingdom and his will be the only thing that would be done in this place. So that when we leave this place, his kingdom and his will is done in all aspects of our life. But there's one final priority I need to touch on. God will never be a priority in your life if you're not a child of God. To become a child of God, you have to accept God's gift as found only in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. And so if you're here this morning and you need to accept that gift for the first time, I want to show you why it's so important to be a priority in this moment right now. God tells us in his word that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is we've all missed the mark. We've all missed the target. What's the glory of God? It's his holiness. It's his perfection, and we all fall short of it. God also tells us that the wages of sin or the cost of sin is death. Now, we all know we're going to die, so what does that word death imply there in Romans 6.23? Well, God is the God of the living. And so that death is implying an eternal separation from the God of the living. Not just one day you're going to die, but you'll be separated from him forever beautiful thing about that verse that goes on says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And in John chapter 3 verse 16, God again tells us about this gift, that God so loved the world, God so loved you, that he gave his only son, that's the gift, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I know there's a lot of people who could be like these Pharisees who say, well, I got all these lists and things and rules and regulations that I do and that's going to make me a good person. But Jesus made it abundantly clear in the Gospel of John that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so if you're here this morning and you're realizing, oh, wow, I'm still in my sin, I'm cut off from God, God has not been a priority because I don't have a relationship with him. Well, God also tells us in his word in Romans chapter 10 that if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth, we will be saved. He makes it that simple. So you may be here today and need to begin a relationship with God to be forgiven for your sins and be given eternal life. It's going to require you to admit to God that you're a sinner. And then tell God you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, that you could be forgiven and be given eternal life. And then the final part is you have to confess it. That word confess means you make it publicly known. So we come to this time of invitation. I'm going to be standing here. If that's something you need to do, I'm going to ask you to come down. You can just sit in the front row. We'll talk. We'll pray. We'll celebrate. Maybe this is the priority you need to focus on in this moment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so much, more than we can ever fathom. 
And you have made the way for us to be redeemed and restored back to you. Father, you know we all did our priorities out of whack. We lose focus of what actually is important. Father, let us pursue you. Let us know you more. And let us be consumed by you. So we can live a life, lead a family, be involved in a relationship or a marriage that pleases you. I thank for what you're doing in this room. I thank the way your spirit's working. Father, we ask you to continue to be glorified in this place. As we come this time of invitation and response, we praise in the name of Jesus.